Blog Talk Radio. show y'all welcome to the show um so today i got some new poll numbers on one mr joseph biden for you and uh he had a theory that well the polls go up and the polls go down and that's just the way it works and it turns out that is not true it turns out you actually have to do some shit to help people or at least have the optics of helping people before your poll numbers go back up so uh yeah, he's struggling, to say the least. We have um, Fox News host Dana Perino weighed in on the giant I-95 traffic jam just outside of Virginia where people were stuck in their car for like 25 hours. Um, she has a doozy of a comment on that one. Trump says he's, uh, he wants to ban Twitter. Rand Paul quits YouTube. Uh, televangelist Jim Baker tries to raise money off the back of uh, the horrendous Kentucky hurricanes in the most disingenuous and gross way possible. Uh, I got a lot of stuff in the show today. It's actually a very interesting one I have for you today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, I want to talk about the new polls. So Joe Biden uh, is toast. That's putting it very gently and and kindly and as soft as I can. Uh, We have some new poll numbers that just came out, so let me go ahead and throw this up on the screen for you. This is from The Hill. They say, President Biden's disapproval rating reached a new high in December, according to a new CNBC change research poll. Overall, the the survey showed 56% of voters disapproved of Biden's performance in office, an uptick from 54% in September and 49% in April. 
His approval rating now stands at 44%. Now, that's the lowest in this particular poll, by the way. I should be clear about that. Biden was particularly hard hit when it came to the public's opinion of his handling of the economy and the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, the poll indicated that 60% of respondents disapproved of Biden's handling of the economy and 55% disapproved of his pandemic response. For the economy, 72% said they disapprove of Biden's management of the price of everyday goods, and 66% said they did not approve of the president's efforts to help their wallets. Now, Biden used to do very well on the issue of the pandemic. He used to have very high grades on the issue of the pandemic. Uh, Now that's tanked, and it's tanked because of the Omicron surge, where we have, you know, a record number of cases every single day rolling in. Now, hospitalizations are going up, but they're still not, you know, past the Delta peak, or maybe even the original peak, because, you know, we have such a large percentage of the population is vaccinated, so when a lot of people get Omicron, it's more just, you know, standard uh, cold symptoms, but there's still plenty of people who are unvaccinated, um, and so there is an uptick in hospitalizations, and uh, I'm sure deaths are rising as well, and they might rise even more, but the other day we had over a million official cases. Now, understand, also, official cases are not a true indicator of the actual number of Omicron cases happening in this surge, because I know plenty of people who've gotten Omicron who were never counted in any official statistics because they didn't go get any official uh, PCR test. Maybe they took a rapid test. Maybe they didn't. But, uh, you know, there's plenty of people get it, and then they're not part of the official statistics. So when they say it's like a million cases a day, Lord knows how many more there actually are floating around out there. So on the issue of the pandemic, which used to be a strong suit, now that's imploded. On the issue of the economy, uh, it's funny because the news is trying to hype up this idea that, well, the stock market is doing well. But as I tell you guys all the time, the stock market is not a great indicator of how your average American is doing. So it's not something that I like to talk about under Republican presidents or Democratic presidents. I don't want to give credit for something that's not a true indicator of the health of your average American. So they can try to push that narrative all they want. And the Biden administration is trying to lean on the idea that the market is doing well. But um, they're really, that's really not a, a good argument. It's just not. Um, so he's really got nothing going on for him right now. Now, Joe Biden had recently said, well, yeah, I get it. My poll numbers are not doing too well right now, but uh, the way it works is the polls go up and the polls go down. So, you know, people might not be feeling too hot about me right now, but check back in a month or two months or three months and boom, all of a sudden it'll pop back up. That's just the way it works. That's the way it worked with Trump. That's the way it's going to work for me. That's the way it worked with Obama. And what he should be noticing at this point is that is definitely not true. There's not just like a, a cycle that is inherent to poll numbers when you're talking about the president or any other politician. I mean, for the love of God, we talk about the congressional poll numbers all the time. It varies between like 7 or 8% and 23%. Usually it's high when it's at like 23%. Are they going to have polls that just go up and down and, hey, maybe next week it'll be at 84% popular? No, that's not the way it works. You actually have to do something or at least have the appearance of doing something, helping people, uh, in order for your poll numbers to go up. And look, I'll submit to you guys right now, what the hell is he doing? What's he doing? Well, there is one answer. And, you know, if you want to give him some modicum of credit on this front, I understand because he just announced uh, something which is an attempt to fight inflation, namely uh, when it comes to 
meat and when it comes to, it might even be beef in particular. So there's been a giant increase in the price of beef. And the actual reason for that is uh, monopolization. So you have four big, I think it's meat packing companies, and um, they're basically colluding to keep the price high. And so Biden announced, look, we need more competition in order to lower those prices. And so he's doing a billion-dollar initiative to try to, you know, have other meat producers and other meat packers who are smaller in size have the government subsidize them so that you can have more competition, therefore destroying the, you know, the monopoly's hold on the game. And so is that a good idea? Sure. I mean, it's a step in the right direction. But, I mean, listen, even under best-case scenario, this is like a long-term approach to try to deal with inflation. Now, some numbers came out the other day, too. This was mind-blowing. 60% of inflation is going to corporate profits. So, in other words, that Business Insider article that we covered on this show a while back, which said, hey, listen, there are outlets like Walmart that they're just jacking up their prices, even if these particular goods are not necessarily caught up in the supply chain crisis, so there is no natural inflation with it. They're using inflation as an excuse to jack up their prices. Now that's happening in an even more widespread way. So, really, the only way that you're going to handle inflation is to take on the corporations directly. Sure, the idea that Biden floated is fine, but you need to enforce our antitrust laws. You need to actually crack down by using our anti-monopoly laws on the books. You've got to break up some companies, and you have to do it now. And, you know, the other thing is, yes, the supply chain is what's to blame for the rest of the crisis. So you have corporate profits, you have monopolies, but then you also have the supply chain crisis, which is still a crisis, which, you know, you should be doing more to address. Now, they have people working around the clock at some of these ports that are backed up and clogged, but there should be more resources that uh, are, are dumped into this issue. And you got to do something now. That's the point. And one of the other problems with Biden is that even if he does something that's good, which is rare, he has no idea how to market it, how to sell it. Like, you know, Trump it was a terrible president, but one of the things he would always do is put on the show to make you think. Remember when he was doing those, you know, those COVID um, daily briefings, and he would go out there and say, we're doing wonderful, we had this under control, we're fighting, we're making therapeutics, it's great. And sometimes, since he's so much of an idiot, he screwed it up because he'd go out there and say, maybe if we get some sunlight inside the body, or if you get some bleach inside the body, then maybe that'll help. So, you know, he, he's dumb, so that came back to bite him in the ass, but at least there was the appearance of being a leader and doing something. Andrew Cuomo, back when he had his highest approval ratings, now granted, this guy's a scumbag and a criminal and everything is optics with that guy, but when he did his daily uh, you know, COVID press conferences, people were like, well, now that's a leader. And he had very high approval ratings, the highest in the country when it comes to a governor. Biden, even if he does something good, which is rare, there's very little bragging about it, marketing it, letting everybody know there's an adult in charge showing it. So what are you going to do, Joe Biden? What are you going to do that impacts right now? And remember, he's got his executive order pen, which is incredibly powerful. And fight, do something, try to cut another stimulus check. Try to cut another stimulus check. Make a big show of it. Trump tried to do that through executive order at one point. You should try to do the same thing. You should call a press conference about it. And if you can't do it through executive order, then try to do it through, um, through regular order and call the Republicans in and, and put pressure on them. Do a press conference where you say, look, we need 60 votes in order to get this through. We're going to try to get a $2,000 stimulus check to everybody. I'm here to tell you I'm on board. Every Democratic senator is on board. 
And look, we got holdouts in the Republican Party. Maybe I could get one or two. But hey, you American people, maybe you should pick up the phone and call these Republicans and tell them you need another stimulus check because I'm ready and willing and waiting to get you another stimulus check. But these guys are obstructionists. These sons of bitches don't want to help the American people in any way, shape, or form. I'm here to help the American people. I'm here to be a leader. I'm here to guide the process. I want to give you $2,000. I want to do that right now. I understand the hurt that's out there. I understand the struggle and the pain that's out there. I understand that people are having a hard time getting by. I understand what inflation is doing to your wallet. I understand how bad the economy is for the average Joe and Jane. Well, I'm here to fight for you. I'm here to do the right thing, and I'm not going to stop until I get it done. So I, but I need your help in the process. Pick up the phone. Call, let everybody know, hey, support President Biden's $2,000 stimulus checks and do it right now. Do something. Give me some appearance of leadership. You know, uh, actually sign some executive orders that might help people. I mean, we talk about it all the time on this show, but when it comes to the student loan debt crisis, you've got nearly $2 trillion in the student loan debt crisis, which is nothing but an anchor tied to the ankle of an entire generation. You can't get rid of all that with the stroke of a pen. You want to talk about a stimulus for, for the American economy. Well, that would help massively. How many people have not been able to buy their first house or haven't been able to get a new car or haven't been able to participate in the economy in a more normal fashion because they're so held back by student loans? Now, thankfully, right now, there's a, you know, they temporarily extended the pause. Okay, good. I'll take it. it was, they were going to have to start on what was it, February 1st or something like that. But no, permanently eliminate it. Go out there, sign an executive order. You know what? We're done with this. No more student loan debt. Uh, we're wiping the debt slate clean. And by the way, I'm going to do an executive order which does rolling student loan debt elimination, which is effectively free college. Do something, Joe Biden. Do something. And he's not. He's not. I, I don't know what planet this guy lives on where you think, what, somehow people are going to start liking you when you haven't done Dickie McGee's act since the $1,400 check last year? I mean, get out of here with that. People are saying, what have you done for me lately? And the answer is, buckus. You haven't done anything. Which is why your numbers are in the dump. Now, I told you, it's just for this poll he's at a record low. His approval rating is 44%. Disapproval is 56%. There was one poll that we talked about. We had him at 38%. It wasn't from this polling company. This is the lowest from this particular polling company. So CNBC change research poll. But, man, I ain't just going to come back up, Joe. You better get to work. If you're not going to lead, at least have the appearance of leadership. And I don't see it. I don't see it. The Democrats have a crisis of imagination. They don't even believe in the power of government, which is why, remember that clip that went viral where you had uh, Jen Psaki? Like, what do you want us to send tests to every American? <laughs> and then even our shitty media... The journalist was like, yeah, other countries have done that. And then you kind of shamed the government into doing an about face and saying, okay, all right, well, we're going to do something kind of similar to that where we, uh, you know, you could request it and then you will get it for free. We're working on the details of that right now. But they have this crisis of imagination where that's their default stance for everything. Hey, government, can you do this basic function of government? Don't be ridiculous. It's neoliberal rot is what it is. So, look, I'm here to tell Joe Biden, iceberg dead ahead. you got a midterm election coming up. Nobody likes you. Your numbers are in the dumps on every single front. The economy, COVID, which are the two biggest things, by the way. So if you don't get to work, you're toast. But, of course, the conventional wisdom in Washington is what? 
the more Biden does, the more progressive he is, the worse that is for the midterms because people are afraid Biden's already gone too far left. I'm not kidding. This is what they actually think in Democratic circles in Washington, D.C. They've internalized the bogus narrative of their opponents. And they have no problem governing in that sort of a non-existent way. So here we are. Joe Biden is truly screwed, and it's never been more clear. Okay. Next. So Glenn Greenwald um, apparently was in talks with people who were close to the Trump administration and directly involved in the Trump administration during the end of Trump's time in office. And he gives here what he calls the semi-inside story of um, Trump's refusal to pardon Snowden and Assange. So I want to go ahead and take a look at uh, what his reading of the situation is based on semi-insider information, and then we'll come back and I'll respond. Uh, CNN in December of 2020 saying if Trump waived pardon, GOP divided on whether Snowden should receive one. There were Republican senators aggressively demanding that Trump dropped the intention to pardon Snowden and Assange. One of them, just as an example, was Lindsey Graham, who in December of 2020, so during the transition, tweeted, to those urging a pardon of Edward Snowden, you are suggesting President Trump pardoned a traitor. Edward Snowden is not a victim. Snowden has American blood on his hands and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Now, that, too, was a lie, as I documented in that same video. Not one document that we published with Edward Snowden ever jeopardized a single individual. The same is true of Assange, but Lindsey Graham doesn't care. I'll just say that anyway. But this is what was going on inside the Republican caucus. In December, though, they really had no leverage, which is why he was getting closer and closer to pardoning Edward Snowden. And that's when, as you see here from U.S. News on January 12th, six days after the January 6th uh, riot, The headline, on the eve of impeachment, some Republicans jump ship as Trump sinks. Three Republicans so far have announced their support for impeaching President Donald Trump as the party considers a post-Trump era. They were making very clear to him, explicitly clear, Republican senators like Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and Mitch McConnell, that if you do any of those things that you are considering doing, pardoning Assange and Snowden, declassifying JFK files, declassifying other secrets that should have been declassified long ago because they're from decades-old treachery on the part of the U.S. government, we will vote to impeach you. They have this leverage, this sword of Damocles hanging over his head. And I am not saying this to justify Trump's cowardly refusal to do what he should have done in pardoning Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. Candace Owen was right in that video that he should have and that if she were in his position, he would have. I'm just, she would have. I'm explaining what I know happened, which is that all signs are pointing in the direction of him pardoning Snowden for sure, and maybe a sign. And then suddenly this preposterous impeachment proceeding to impeach a president who was out of his way out anyway, emerged precisely because it gave them the leverage to threaten Trump and say that they would convict him if he did any of those things. And that is why he left office without doing what you can tell from that video he knows he should have done. He's very sheepish, but very uncharacteristically timid 
about explaining what he did. Oh, I was just too nice. I was just too nice. I'm known for being too nice. That wasn't the reason. The reason was, was because he was afraid of those Republican threats to convict him. So there it is. That's what was going on behind the scenes. So do I buy that theory? Yeah, I do. Um, I think, well, I think there's another uh, aspect to it as well, which is Trump is very likely to listen to the last person who was in the room talking to him in a similar way that George Bush would do the same thing. And I think he was mostly surrounded by people who were telling him, you can't do it. The guy's a traitor, Snowden and Assange. They're evil. Um, they're undermining U.S. intelligence. They're helping our enemies. There's blood on their hands. They have this, you know, this long list of arguments that are wholly untrue that come directly from the CIA and the Pentagon. And um, the people around Trump, he surrounded himself with neocon hawks. By the way, whose fault is that? It's his fault. He, John Bolton was in his administration for a long time. Granted, he was out by, by this point. But you had Mike Pompeo, who's just as bad as John Bolton, who bragged about lying and cheating and stealing while at the CIA. Um, and when most of the people around Trump say something, he goes, no, you're right, I, I think we'll go with that. I mean, same thing happened with all the times he huffed and he puffed and he said, we're going to get out of Afghanistan. How many times do you go on Twitter and say, we're pulling out of Afghanistan, and then you found out soon thereafter, actually, no, we're not. And it's because you have generals walk in, as Trump would say, straight out of central casting, depressed, depressed uniform and everything. Uh, and they'd be like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and not do that. And he'd be like, you're right, no, we're going to go ahead and not do that. So he cuffed himself to the deep state. And by the way, earlier on in that video, uh, Glenn uses those exact same words, that Trump effectively is a cuck. So I think it's the fact that most of the people around him were telling him that, um, mixed with the fact that after January 6th, the Democrats were talking about impeachment. And you had the neocon hawks in the Senate who either said to Trump directly or said to him in a roundabout way, hey, listen, if you go ahead with pardoning or commuting uh, these people that we're talking about here, well, then maybe I will join with the Democrats. And maybe we will impeach you. But look, the reason why that's extra non-excusable is because, as Glenn points out, Trump was on the way out anyway. Who cares if they impeach you? You're going, going gonzo, son. It's over. It's done. So about, and that, that also might be further evidence that Trump is planning on running in 2024, too, is that he seemingly didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize, in the eyes of the establishment, a second run for him. So, oh, I can't do the thing where I pardon these outsider anti-establishment heroes because then I, I no longer have whatever credibility I do have within the club of my own party's establishment. That's possible, if not likely. But I, I wouldn't doubt that you had the likes of a Marco Rubio and a Lindsey Graham, because Mitt Romney was already kind of on that page. There are other Republicans. Well, was Mitt Romney? No, Mitt Romney wasn't even in there at this point, I don't think. Was he? I don't remember. But there are some Republicans. There's a handful of Republicans, potentially enough to make the difference, who are like, yeah, look, we're, we'd be in favor of impeachment if you dare do these things. So ultimately, what happened? It came down for Trump to the thing it always comes down to for him, self-preservation. And you could talk throughout his entire career, this is what's been the motivating factor for Donald Trump, self-preservation. How many times, like when his, uh, his casinos or any of his businesses went bankrupt, he would always find a way 
to get away largely unscathed while he would burn his workers like nobody's business. There were all those stories that came out in 2015 and 2016 when he was in the Republican primary. People who worked directly with Trump on his hotels, whether it was electricians or plumbers or whatever, they'd be like, the guy owes me $17,000 and he stiffed me. Just incredible detail about specific cases of this happening. Because, again, it always comes down to him. It always comes down to self-preservation for him. And so he viewed this as a self-preservation type move. So he's like, Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, forget it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to pardon them. I'm not going to commute their sentences. Or I guess it wouldn't be a commutation because technically there are no sentences against them, but you, he could just pardon them and let them come back in the country and everything would be hunky-dory. Well, Snowden would want to come back in the country. Julian Assange isn't even American, but you get the point. So uh, that's the semi-inside story right there. And, and Glenn even talks about the specific Republicans who were working, who actually agree with the libertarian right and, and the progressive left who wanted these people to be pardoned. Name, Matt Gates was one of them, and, and there were a handful of others. I think even um, possibly even certain Trump kids, I don't know if it was Don, probably Don, not Eric or Ivanka, but there were some who were lobbying him, and that's uh, the right thing to do. And ultimately, self-preservation won out. And they had the piece of leverage of impeachment. But the leverage shouldn't have meant Dickie McGee's axe to Trump anyway, because you already lost, dog. Get, it, get over it. Get over it. Get over it. Get over it. And by the way, that is one of those things. Funny enough, he actually totally miscalculated in this sense. If this is a guy who cares about narcissism and self-aggrandizement and building a legacy, that would have went down as one of the better things that he did. That would have been one of the things that you know, was talked about in decades as, well, Trump did do that thing, like Obama pardoning Chelsea Manning, for example. That's one of the best things he did. Still talk about that in a positive sense. It would have been positive if Trump had done it for Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. And by the way, also, my theory was that, because Trump said to Candace Owens, oh, I, I, I was, felt strongly more about one than the other, and he said, I won't tell you which. My theory was that he felt more strongly about Julian Assange, because Julian Assange in 2016 and WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks sort of inadvertently ended up helping Trump because WikiLeaks released the DNC emails which showed that Hillary Clinton sort of rigged the primary and the DNC sort of rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders. And so since that politically helped Trump, I thought, well, he feels more strongly about Julian Assange than Edward Snowden. According to Glenn, with his sources who are close to the Trump administration, uh, he says, actually, no, it's the opposite. He felt more strongly about Snowden than he did about Assange. So what are potential reasons for that? I mean, my guess is the people who are around Trump, the, you know, most of the voices in the room were more clear that they think Assange is the one who, whatever, has blood on his hands and all this stuff, which is not true, but he's probably told that over and over. And also, Assange, uh, I don't think they curated the stuff that they released through WikiLeaks nearly as much as Snowden and Greenwald did. Now, I don't know if that's one of the you know, granular details that Trump was told, but uh, Greenwald and, and Snowden and Poitras and, you know, this is when Greenwald was at The Guardian, they really went through all the information that they were going to release with a fine-tooth comb and basically redacted anything that they thought even theoretically might, you know, harm American troops or whatever the hell. And apparently that's not the same process that Julian Assange used. Now, again, it, it really comes to naught anyway because there, were no, there was no harm done by Julian Assange releasing U.S. war crimes. That was a heroic thing to do. There was no harm done by any of the, the WikiLeaks leaks. Um, but the narrative around it was, hey, the, the Snowden crew was more, um, was more thoughtful 
and went through everything with a fine-tooth comb, and WikiLeaks was more of a bulk dump of information. So, again, there's doesn't matter because nobody was harmed, and they both are heroes, but um, that is one of the narratives around it, so maybe that was something that uh, Trump was told and why he felt more strongly about Snowden than he did about Assange, according to Glenn and his inside sources. But there you have it. Self-preservation wins out for the pathological narcissist. Not too surprised. Okay. So Dana Perino is uh, not the brightest, and she said something which is astounding here. She went on, uh, she was on her show after this gigantic I-95 traffic jam. What happened is there was a snowstorm that swept through the D.C. area. It was D.C. and Virginia. Um, and funny enough, here in New York, we got nothing. And, you know, obviously we're north of D.C., but weirdly they got snow. We didn't. Um, they didn't treat the roads. They didn't treat the roads before this snowstorm. And D.C. is not as used to snow as New York or places north of New York. So it created all hell broke loose because they didn't pre-treat the roads. They didn't put salt on the roads. And so you had this very wet snow that fell. You had the sheet of ice that was on the, on the, uh, the roads and the ground. And a um, couple trucks jackknifed. And for whatever reason, they couldn't fix it. And if I'm not mistaken, they may have fixed some of it once, and then immediately people started crashing again. And I-95 was just totally clogged for literally over a full day, 24 hours. Tim Kaine was on the road, I think, for 27 hours, maybe 28. People were running out of food. They were running out of fuel. They didn't have anywhere to go to the bathroom. Everybody was just stuck in their cars because I-95 was totally shut down. A couple jackknife trucks, and it was game, set, and match. The whole thing was blocked. It's a total nightmare. This shouldn't happen at all. They should have pre-treated the roads. They should have had better uh, rescue teams. I mean, shit, I watch it. When it's late at night and I'm, like, half asleep, I'll throw on this channel, uh, this uh, weather channel show. I think it's called Highway Through Hell, where I think it's in British Columbia, Canada, where they get monster snowstorms, like, every day. And the roads are treacherous. And you got these trucks all the time that jackknife or go off the road. And, and these guys do the rescue. These guys flip the trucks up or get rid of the jackknife and clear the road. They'll handle some shit in an hour or two or three. And here you have Washington, D.C. Now, they don't get nearly as much snow there, so that's probably why they weren't prepared enough. But you got these things jackknife, and, like, the world shuts down. I mean, it's just pathetic. It's further evidence of imperial rot because, like, really, this is not a problem you can handle? This isn't something that you guys had the manpower or the ability to, to fix? It's it just the saddest thing I've ever seen. And, again, the... The original sin was you didn't pre-treat the roads, which they absolutely had to do. Well, anyway, Dana Perino has something to say about what's to blame for this happening. I want to point out one thing that I do not believe has been said yet. Uh, I talked to a state legislator there in Virginia, and he pointed out to me that in the last several years, many on the left made the decision that local sheriffs should not be allowed to have military-grade equipment. Right, because they said that that was a bad symbol and that it was too militaristic and authoritarian. But imagine if they were still allowed to have the equipment that they had just a few years ago, it probably would have come in very helpful today. I, I... How the hell would military-grade equipment help them? What are you going to do? Go out there and light up the jackknife trucks with some giant machine guns? 
use some Kevlar vest to, like, body surf down the roads? Ah! What are you talking about, military grade? How the fuck would that help? I, my favorite part of that clip is at the very beginning. At the very beginning, she's like, I have a point to make. I don't think anybody else has said this yet. Yeah, Dana, nobody else said it because nobody else is as dumb as you on the panel. She said it like she was proud to have thought of this. And she's amazed. Well, nobody else beat me to this thought. What are you going to do? Roll tanks down I-95 when I-95 is so clogged that the tanks can't go anywhere? What, are you going to drive over the cars with a giant tanks or something? In no way, shape, or form would military equipment have helped this situation. You know what helped this situation? Pre-treating the roads. That's it. So basic intelligent infrastructure work and prep, that's it. Maybe after that, having more functional rescue crews that are better at dealing with the icy conditions or the jackknife trucks or whatever. Like, I have no doubt that if it was those dudes on the show Highway Through Hell, they would have cleaned that bitch up in like 37 minutes and everybody would have been good. So that's the problem. What are you talking about? It's just so indicative of the conservative reaction to everything. You know, it's like whenever there's a mass shooting, the first thing they say is, if only we had more guns. What? (laughs) We have over 300 million guns in this country. We are swimming in a sea of guns. And we have more than almost every other, maybe every other developed country. And would you look at that? We have more mass shootings than any other country. So how could you say this thing, which is, which is objectively leading to the problem, is actually the solution? Now, I get it. There's like a game theory idea with the good guys have the guns, and, you know, then they'd be able to outnumber the bad guys. But point is, they have the same reaction to everything whenever there's a problem with the economy. You know, if we just did more tax cuts for the rich and deregulation, that would fix it. What about when you did the tax cuts for the rich and the deregulation under Bill Clinton? He did the deregulation. And then under George W. Bush, he did deregulation and tax cuts for the rich. And then that led to a giant crash. What about that? Well, the problem is we didn't cut taxes enough. And the problem is we didn't deregulate enough. The answer on foreign policy, more war. The answer with mass shootings, more guns. The answer with anything involving the economy. Cut the red tape, deregulate, and cut taxes for the rich. And th- this is that conservative instinct. Like, I, and the other thing is, I, just, I have to find a way to own the libs. Any way possible, I can own the libs. You have people, both on Fox News and the real hard right base, the online right, they have built, in a, their entire existence is built around this notion of, I solely want to trigger the libs. My whole reason for existing is, how do I trigger the libs? How do I blame the libs, and how do I trigger the libs? So what do I do here? Well, stupid libs didn't want military-grade equipment going to the cops. And you know what? I think that would have solved the traffic jam. It's astounding. Now, you tell me, man. I know the Fox News audience. 78 years old, retired, watching on their couch or whatever. Please tell me that even they, for a split second, went, carry the six. I'm not sure how that would work, Dana. 
how would that work? How would the military-grade equipment have solved this crisis? How would it have done it? No, the answer is, for the love of God, let's get some basic functioning infrastructure. I know that area, by the way, of I-95, because I go to D.C. all the time. And they got endless construction. They've had construction going on there since, like, 1922. I mean, it's just non all the time always 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 so you know one of the things is for the love of god actually update the infrastructure get it over with and let's fix it that's one thing but then also just have intelligent public officials who know you got to pre-treat the roads before a snowstorm comes in have better rescue like it's the basics you got to cover the basics and cover all your bases in order to fix something like this. And instead of the obvious answer, they go right to, let me trigger the libs, let me blame the libs, let me say, I don't know, lack of military-grade equipment or something, that's the problem. She was proud of this point. She was proud of it. You could see it in her face. She was like, can't believe nobody else said this first, but here's the problem. There you go. This is Fox News, giving their viewers brain worms since they launched. I think they launched in, like, 1996. Is that right? Um, The amount of damage that that this silly network has done is almost immeasurable. All right, next. Here we go. Oh, I got a whole bunch of notes on this one, so let me go ahead and pull those up. Let me go ahead and pull those up. Okay, here we go. So President Trump is now saying that we should ban Twitter. Um, And you have Rand Paul, who's doing an exodus from big tech, and he's starting with YouTube. So let me go ahead and... Uh, throw this up there for everybody to take a look. This is tweeted by Rumble. Breaking news. Quote, this is uh, from a Washington Examiner piece with Rand Paul. So today I announced that I will begin an exodus from big tech. I will no longer post videos on YouTube unless it is to criticize them or announce that viewers can see my content on rumble.com. So, um, I read his piece and... Look, there, there are parts of it that I agree with. He says, I cited a study where um, cloth mask, masks are much less effective than surgical masks, and surgical masks are much less effective than KN95 masks, and the N95 masks are much more effective than the KN95 masks. So there's a hierarchy of masks. In the same way that we now know there's like a hierarchy of the vaccines, Johnson & Johnson uh, being the least effective, and then uh, Pfizer being the second, Moderna being the most effective. So he made that point, and, um, you know, whatever video he talked about that in, it was axed. Uh, The other thing is, you know, criticism of Dr. Fauci uh, has been either censored or held back in the algorithm. The the original idea of, hey, this may have came from a Wuhan lab, at one point that was considered flat-out misinformation. And I think uh, Rand Paul may have been banned from one platform or another for – for floating that idea. And he's like, well, now we know that's not crazy. And it is true that that's actually probably the more likely scenario. We don't know for sure, but 
John Stewart was joking about this on Stephen Colbert's show. He's like, dude, we have a basically the Wuhan Bat Coronavirus Research Center that right there in Wuhan, and people are acting like it's insane that a bat coronavirus may have come from there. So the idea that you ban this or you can't talk about it is insane. Now, I will say, Rand Paul, he's a little more slippery than he'd like to admit. So in other words, oftentimes he takes uh, his opinions on this, and he, and he goes way overboard. So he'll be way more conclusive. So in other words, instead of saying what I just said, hey, cloth masks work the worst, but there's still some semblance of protection, then surgical, then N95 are the best. Instead of like saying, hey, there's a hierarchy, these ones are better than these ones, he would just summarize that as masks don't work. Okay, well then I think there is a fair claim that you're doing misinformation, or at the very least saying something that's misleading. Now, but where him and I agree is, no, I don't think you should be banned for saying that. Uh, and if you're going to ban that under the guise of, well, this is COVID misinformation, well, then YouTube, you better get to work um, you know, totally eliminating every single video from Fauci early on in the pandemic when he said masks don't work. Because there's that famous video where he said early on in the pandemic, you don't need to go around wearing a mask everywhere. Uh, you know, that's, that's overboard. Then eventually that changed. And there's a number of claims. I mean, the CDC and the uh, World Health Organization and the FDA, like all of these official government bodies, every step of the way in the pandemic, instead of being like, hey, we don't know about X, Y, or Z yet, they would just say whatever their thoughts were at the time. And oftentimes, they would just be dead wrong. So if you're going to start banning coronavirus misinformation, then you've got to ban that stuff. And let's be clear, there's also misinformation on the other side of this. You know, there are people who've gotten the vaccine and gotten boosted, but they functionally act like the vaccine doesn't work. Or sometimes they just flat out say it. And so in other words, there are overcautious liberals who sort of spread misinformation as well. But my guess is they won't ban them because they're erring more on the side of caution and erring more on the side of the, the liberal side of this debate. So they sort of get a pass. So in a sense, I, I, understand what Rand Paul is saying here. But the fact of the matter is he's wrong that, uh, on what the solution is. So in his piece, he lays out, listen, I, I understand that when it comes to free speech, that's just the government cannot prosecute you for your speech. The government cannot suppress your political speech. A uh, private company can do whatever they want with my stuff, so that's why I'm going to these other platforms. See, on that front, I go, you're wrong, Rand, because my solution isn't the capitalist libertarian response of, hey, private property is private property, and they can do whatever they want. No. I think the reality is all of the big social media outlets today are effectively the new public square. And since that's the case, you should regulate them as if they're public utilities, expand First Amendment protections, and allow free speech to flourish. Now, that doesn't mean you can do doxing, direct threats of violence, um, targeted harassment, libel, slander, all that stuff is still going to be illegal. But at least we would know what the clear rules are and there wouldn't be any targeting for just false information or for, you know, political disagreements. And so in a weird way, I will say this, at least he's being consistent with his libertarian philosophy, where he's like, no, private company is a private company, they can do what they want. But I'm not, uh, you know, a right-wing libertarian. I'm a leftist. And my answer is to regulate them as if they're public utilities. So I think he's wrong on that. And I also think he's wrong on this notion that 
you can build an effective alternative. It's like, in theory, sure, but in theory, RC Cola can knock Coca-Cola and Pepsi off the top spot. Is it actually going to happen? No. So you go to where the audience is, and the entire audience now is on Facebook, on Twitter, on Insta, on YouTube. Like, that's where the people are. So if you think, well, we're just, we'll just have this startup and, and knock the kings off their throne, not like it hasn't been tried before. There's been a number of video websites that have tried to do a YouTube thing, and it didn't work out. There's a number of sites that try to do it. We're the free speech alternative to Twitter. Well, what happened with that? Gab is one example. And they literally became Nazi central in like two and a half minutes. And that's not hyperbole. Actual Nazis over there, neo-Nazis, whatever. So I don't agree with him on that. Now, uh, Trump was responding to Marjorie Taylor Greene getting banned from Twitter. And he released a statement and said this. Twitter is a disgrace to democracy. They shouldn't be allowed to do business in this country. What? Marjorie Taylor Greene has a huge constituency of honest, patriotic, hardworking people. They don't deserve what's happened to them on places like low-life Twitter and Facebook. Everybody should drop off of Twitter and Facebook. They're boring, have only a radical left point of view, and are hated by everyone. They are a disgrace to our nation. Keep fighting, Marjorie. I mean, look, the important line there is they shouldn't be allowed to do business in this country. So in other words, the criticism is, hey, these guys are authoritarian, and so my response to that is, I'm going to be authoritarian and I want to ban them. They shouldn't be allowed to do business in this country. Well, that's a very China-esque response, isn't it? That's a deeply authoritarian response, isn't it? So if you believe that authoritarianism is bad because all they're banning speakers, that is an authoritarian move. You can't respond to that by saying, I'm going to be authoritarian. That's a, a performative contradiction, if I've ever seen one. But that's Donald Trump. You know, when I do it, it doesn't count. When they do it, it's bad and it counts. Now, of course, he's a cuck. He would never actually pull the trigger on something like that. He was president for four years, and he didn't. Uh, but it says a lot about the mindset, doesn't it? And when these guys yelp about free speech, we already know. They don't actually believe in free speech. They just want to be the censors. They want to be in the driver's seat. They want to be the ones determining what is allowed and what isn't allowed. I mean, we saw this with Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy. He's like, I'm doing a free speech alternative to social media, to Twitter. And he's like, and by the way, the rules are no cursing, no taking the Lord's name in vain, no pornography. And he went down a whole list of things. And it's like, well, that's not a free speech platform now, is it? And the other thing is people pointed this out. Trump now has a financial incentive to make this point because he's starting his own social media company. And by the way, they're raising a lot of money for it too. But Trump has every reason in the world to be like, oh, Twitter's really bad and it should be banned. And come to our thing. Come to our thing. Our thing's a lot better. So um, Trump wants to ban Twitter. Rand Paul is doing an exodus from big tech and he's starting with YouTube. But by the way, he does go on to say, um, if I ever post on this these outlets again, it'll be to direct you to my new outlets or to criticize these outlets, which in a way sort of undermines the point because it's like, well, if, if on YouTube they're going to allow you to ruthlessly criticize YouTube, they're obviously not peak authoritarian now, are they? Because it's still a platform where you can shit on them relentlessly while you're on it, so how bad are they? Now, again, I don't, that's not too compelling a point in my opinion because I do think they're very restrictive. And I haven't gotten started on the algorithm. You guys know my whole spiel on the algorithm because I think it buries content like mine and prioritizes 
authoritative news like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, and that's not fair. So really, uh, I, I share some of the same criticisms, but I don't think the exodus is going to accomplish anything. And the other point that lefties were making is, oh, no, conservatives, please don't leave these platforms. That would be terrible. Because if they actually do that, it's a little bit of siloing off of themselves, isn't it? Because, again, the audiences are here. That's just a fact. So you can try to build it elsewhere and see if they will come, but my guess is it'll be like the other four or five attempts to, you know, do a version of YouTube. So, but if it's your prerogative, be my guest. This is good. Jim Baker is a proven con artist and fraud. He's actually been to prison for it. Um, he's a televangelist, and he is going to bite off more than he can chew here. So we had those horrific Kentucky tornadoes that happened in December where it was like a record number of tornadoes. or It was a record in terms of how powerful they were for the month of December. And um, he's going to use this to, number one, downplay climate change. But number two, you know, I won't even say it. I won't even spoil it. Listen to it from his own mouth. This storm, this is, this is what's an A tornado. You hear me? Same it. We hear you. We're it wasn't it. just a tornado. It was like 200 tornadoes. I don't know the exact number yet. Do you about know mine? 40, about 40 tornadoes. 40, 40 tornadoes? Yes. Well, I don't know. There was lots of them. I know that. And they wiped out people. There's, I know, a thousand homes gone. People just without a home. This is a sign they get the storms are going to get worse and worse, and it's not global warming, it's the last days. The, the world is always going to have an excuse for what God's trying to warn us with. They're going to say, oh no, it says global warming and we can fix it. You can't fix it. It's in the days of Noah. You can't fix this. The Bible says in the days of Noah, it's going to be now. So I, I want you to help today. Those that can give $1,000 to help us stay on the air. What? Well, he sure drove that into a ditch, didn't he? These tornadoes, oh my God, they're terrible. People, are, people were dying. Houses were destroyed. People's lives upended and ruined. Endless tornadoes. It was like something out of a nightmare. And that's why I need you to give me $1,000. What? Now, uh, when I first saw this, I was like, what, what, is he in Kentucky or something? I don't, like, what, what is he saying? You see it right there, P.O. Box 7330, Branson, Missouri. He's in Missouri. He's simply just using other people's tragedy to gain for himself and his outlet. Remember, this is a guy, he literally is a proven criminal, right, convicted. And one of the things he does on his show is he sells these giant, disgusting buckets of, like, end times food. These large buckets with grotesque, like, I don't know, dried food that lasts a while or whatever. And he hawks those all the time. But this is even worse than that stuff. Like, always always beware, like, 
people hawking supplements and stuff like that. Like Alex Jones sells all these supplements. And that's actually probably the worst crime of Alex Jones is not even the Sandy Hook stuff. The worst crime is he's hawking these unproven, ridiculous supplements and overcharging people like crazy on his own website. And there's a claim there that, that it's just you're committing fraud. That's what you're doing. And this guy's using a tornado or tornadoes to say, that's why you got to give me money. Got to give it to me. Not, hey, here's a relief effort. You donate to the relief effort or whatever. No. He's talking about it as if he's going to go in that direction. And it's like, which is why Jesus wants me to be rich. Because bad things are happening. So come with me. And you are, and to add a little cherry on top, it's the climate change denial. You know? It couldn't, had to somehow find a way to be doubly or triply wrong in the clip. Couldn't just be a charlatan con man fraud. Had to also add... Uh, political inaccuracies in there. End times. Look, at any point in time throughout history, there's a natural disaster. You can make the case, oh, I think this is end times. But how many times have these guys, not Jim Baker in particular, but there are other people. I remember there was one preacher, I don't know if it was Hagee, uh, would talk about the blood moons and the world's going to end in this year. And then it just didn't. And then they just woke up the next day and kept acting like they didn't just make a claim that was proven objectively wrong. I mean, this is the same kind of stuff. It's end time, so give me money. Since we're all going to die, how about you make me rich? Can we all agree to that? Can we all agree to that? Oh, that pitch didn't work. People's homes are destroyed and Kentucky is ruined and endless tornadoes are bad, and that's why now you give me money. You all good with that? $1,000? By the way, I love how bold he is with his pitches. I mean, goddamn, son. He didn't even ease into it with, like, hook a brother up with $20? $1,000 to me. Who the hell watching Jim Baker is like, yeah, let me go get you my spare $1,000? Half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. 78%, probably more now, are living paycheck to paycheck. That's a pre-pandemic number. Send me $1,000. And then God will be like, hey, dog, you're the man because you looked out for my boy Jim Baker. So I'll give, you, I'll give you front row seats in heaven. I got you. It's, just, it's so shameless. I always find it funny when people who exist in the era of the Internet act like they don't. Like, you don't know that people could just sort of read up on the world on the Google machine you don't know that. There's over 4,000 religions in the world. Even just looking at it from a mathematical perspective, you've got to go, am I sure that mine's the right one? i got a 1 in 4,200-something chance? Hmm. Shameless, man. Using tornadoes to get rich and fundraise for his own shitty program where he'll continue to scream about the end times until he croaks. It's also astounding he's still able to pull away, get away with these sort of scams. And this, my understanding, is perfectly legal. He's just a religious person asking for donations. But he loves to walk that fine line, doesn't he? Between outright fraud and criminal activity and just being a scummy preacher. I can't imagine who watches him. But then again, Pat Robertson apparently had good ratings. I don't know who the hell watched him either. What a mess.
All right, next. So Ted Cruz um, has a new podcast. I'd love to know how the ratings are on that podcast. Look, Ted Cruz does have a weird following. Uh, I mean, he beat Donald Trump in the Republican primary in Texas. So there are some people who like him. I know it's hard to imagine, but it's true. He's smarmy. He's smug. He has the most punchable face in all of politics. Somehow he's got a following. Well, he's got this new podcast, and um, he made a claim that had me actually LOLing the other day. I was lolling because it is so disconnected from reality um, and so deep in that conservative bubble that it's special. So here he is talking about impeachment of Biden, but look at the issue he chooses. Said at the time, when we have a Democratic president and a Republican House, you can expect an impeachment proceeding. That's not how impeachment is meant to work. But, but I think the Democrats cross that line. I think there'll be enormous pressure uh, on a Republican House to begin impeachment proceedings. I think there are uh, potentially multiple grounds to consider for impeachment. Probably the most compelling uh, is the utter lawlessness of, of President Biden's refusal to enforce the border, his, his decision to just defy federal immigration laws, and allow two million people to come here unimpeded in, in direct contravention of his obligation under Article Two of the Constitution to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That's probably the strongest grounds right now for impeachment, but there may be others. The border. The border is the issue that you want to impeach Joe Biden over the border. The border. Listen, I'm not saying there's nothing you can impeach him over. He did an illegal drone strike on Afghan women and babies. And then we learned after, yep, those were women and babies. Said, oh, it's to get back ISIS for attacking the airport. Well, you got children and innocent people. That's something you can maybe impeach over? Absolutely. We can come up with probably five or six different things that are like, hmm, well, that seems totally unacceptable in a variety of different ways. He went with the border. The funniest thing about this is Biden's border policies, although there are small differences, he's taken the broad strokes from Donald Trump. So take a look at this. Vox says, President Joe Biden says he wants to end the Remain in Mexico policy, a Trump-era program that has forced tens of thousands of migrants to await decisions on their immigration cases in Mexico for months. In a seemingly contradictory move, Biden is first reinstating and expanding it. The program's return was ordered by the courts. The policy's expansion, however, was a choice made by the Biden administration. On Thursday, the U.S. reached an agreement with the Mexican government to revive The Migration Protection Protocols, also known as the Remain in Mexico policy, under Trump, the policy allowed 70,000 migrants seeking entry into the U.S. to be sent to Mexican border towns where many lived in squalid encampments or in overcrowded shelters and were targeted by criminal gangs. Biden halted MPP shortly after taking office, fulfilling a campaign promise, but his administration has argued that it has no choice but to reinstate the program starting on Monday. A federal court in Texas ordered the administration to continue forcing migrants to wait in Mexico until it expands its capacity to detain migrants in the U.S., The ruling came as part of a lawsuit brought by Texas and Missouri 
the Supreme Court has refused to block the lower court ruling. So remain in Mexico. Court told him, hey, you have to do it. So he goes, okay, while I'm at it, let me expand it. That is a Trump-era policy. That's what that is. I have more for you. This is in CNBC. The Biden administration appeals judge's order to stop expelling migrants under Trump-era pandemic policy. The Biden administration is appealing a judge's order that bars the government from expelling migrants quickly under a Trump-era pandemic policy that doesn't allow them to apply for asylum. The policy, Title 42, was first introduced by former President Donald Trump in March 2020 over concerns about the spread of the coronavirus. While President Joe Biden has worked to roll back many of Trump's hardline immigration policies, he renewed Title 42 last month after the CDC issued an update order justifying its use due to the ongoing pandemic. How do you like them apples? How do you like them apples? So, um, I actually have, it's even worse than you think, to be honest, because I have the specific numbers here for you of Title 42 and the deportations around it. So again, Title 42 is this idea, hey man, we're in a pandemic, I don't know what you want me to tell you, I have no choice but to not follow U.S. laws and international laws, therefore allowing people who are seeking asylum to at least get a hearing. They go, nope, pandemic, it's an immediate no, it's an immediate deportation, no process. Okay. Under Title 42, Trump was in there for eight years. He deported 440,000 people. Biden has been in office nowhere near as long as Trump. He's already deported 690,000 people. So the pace Biden is deporting people under Title 42 is way above and beyond anything Trump did. In a world that made sense, the left would be ripping Biden for this. They are, by the way, because they actually believe in certain things. And the Republicans would be cheering on Joe Biden. Just like, remember, under Barack Obama, his nickname was the Deporter-in-Chief. Why? Because he broke deportation records. That did not stop the Republicans from pretending like he was soft on the border and he was in favor of open borders and he wanted total amnesty. All of that was a lie. All of that was utterly made up. They had this caricature, they have this stereotype of Democrats in their mind, and they just superimpose it onto whatever the reality is. So Joe Biden is actually, in some ways, more hardline than Trump on the border. Instead of getting credit from the likes of Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz is like, maybe we'll impeach him over the border. Now, what theoretical argument could he be using? My guess is just the fact that there's been a surge of migrants coming into the country, so he just wants to blame Joe Biden for the surge of migrants uh, and therefore act like he's weak on the border. Well, that is... uh, phenomenally hollow analysis. That's what that is. And again, he's being very conservative on the border. But no, now it's impeach him over it. Impeach him over what? Funny enough, there might actually be an argument for impeachment only from the perspective of this is too hardline. This is too right wing. Title 42 is illegal under U.S. law. There was a court that ruled against it, but I guess a higher court reversed it or something. But even under international law, if somebody asks for asylum, you got to give them their hearing. But is he going to, say, impeach Biden from a left perspective on the board? No. He's saying you're not being hawkish enough. You're not being bellicose enough. You're not being hardline enough. What do you want him to do? Firing squads? I don't understand. 
this is the type of stuff that always turned me off to the right. On top of like ideologically and on policy disagreeing with them, it's also this stuff. It's also the wanton disregard for the empirical and objective reality, where they're not engaging with the world as it is. They're engaging with it as they pretend it is. And I just find that incredibly stale, boring, and stupid. And you should too. Now, are you going to hear this sort of stuff on Ben Shapiro's show? Is he going to tell you the reality? No, because the reality flies in the face of his narrative, and that's all they care about is their narrative. That's it. Absolutely pathetic. He's somehow wrong in like six different ways in one short clip that's a little over a minute long. Doesn't get any sadder than that. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, um, Trump supporters are still blaming Antifa for January 6th. That is crazy.
we are back. We are back, y'all. We are back, y'all. Let's talk about this amazing video from CNN. So there are uh, Trump supporters who CNN interviewed, you know, real average Joes and Janes here, um, and they wanted to know now, like a year removed, what are your thoughts on January 6th? And, um, oh, they've latched on to a narrative, that's for damn sure. What I'm amazed by is how how they flip and oscillate and go back and forth between this and that and this and that. But uh, this is a great example here of, they, I think they know they're talking to a CNN guy, and so uh, most of them lock into a specific narrative. Take a look. January 6th attack was not the Republicans nor Trump. It was the Democrats were behind it all. They're the ones that caused it all. Do you really believe that? I know it. And there is no way that a Republican would act that way, and there is no way that Trump had anything to do with what happened on January 6th. What about all the Trump supporters that have been charged? And because it's all Democratic judges and people that were on the take from the Democrats. It's been a year since the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And because of disinformation, denial, and diversion, Americans don't have a shared history, a shared understanding of what happened here on that day. I think the whole reporting of it is a giant hoax. We are very peaceful people. So it was a total setup. To me, it was the FBI had set it up. I don't believe that they were Trump supporters that did that. You said the whole thing was set up. You don't really believe that, do you? I do. I do. Because Trump won the election. They, 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 they've proven it over and over again. I really don't think Trump had much to do with it. Uh, people that were supporters for him. Some were involved, but I think they were enticed by the FBI and by, by, you know, undercover agents. When I spoke to Trump supporters here in Washington on January 6th, most were in denial about the results of the 2020 election. Do you accept that Biden won the election? Absolutely not. Uh, Biden did not win this election. On January 6th, we walked with Trump supporters who marched from the White House, where Trump was doing his speech, here to the U.S. Capitol. And as we arrived here, that is when the first security barrier was breached. At the time, some Trump supporters told me they were happy with what happened here at the Capitol. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. I think we should have gone on in and yanked our senators out by the hair of the head and drove them out and said, no more. I absolutely uh, stand behind 100% what happened here today. 1,000%. It's terrible how this election was stolen. Wow. So, um, depending on who they're talking to, who they're in company with, and their mood. I've seen this nonstop. They oscillate back and forth between Antifa and BLM did it, and it was terrible, to the FBI did it, and it was terrible, to we did it, and it was based. 
you, you got to pick one, bro. You can't you can't say Democrats did it and it was terrible, but if we did it, it was based. But you do see that, and you see that sometimes from the same people, depending on the mood they're in, and depending when you talk to them or who they're surrounded by. I mean, the most absurd of all of the lines, of course, is that Antifa was behind it or BLM was behind it or Democrats were behind it. That is very clearly not the case. That's not the case at all. Um, There is some truth to the idea that the FBI was involved. I have no doubt that there were some, you know, whatever, undercover agents as part of what went down. But you cannot blame the FBI for the hundreds of people who stormed the Capitol, was that, were they all FBI? They definitely were not all FBI. And by the way, that's the Tucker Carlson narrative where, you know, you try to pawn all the blame off on the FBI. Again, I'm sure there were some agents that were among them, and maybe they even did try to entice in certain ways. But when you have hundreds of people storming the Capitol, by the way, I think there's been like 700 prosecutions or something like that. Now, I don't know. I'd have to go through every single one of those prosecutions with a fine-tooth comb to see what I think is fair, what I think is unfair, and so on and so forth. But certainly, some of the people who went down absolutely deserve to go down, and they violated a number of laws. So it's just, it's it's wild to see, isn't it? Because it is, it really is deep denial from a lot of these people. And then one person said, well, um, all the judges were corrupted by Democrats. That's just not true. You know, like there are plenty of conservative judges who were like, you violated the law and you're going to go down. I mean, even a lot of Republican senators were open about the fact that, hey, this crossed a clear line and you shouldn't have done it. It reminds me of like they say about the uh, all of the election cases where they were trying to prove, hey, this was actually stolen. Well, there were over 60 court cases. And Trump lost every single one but one, and the one that he won was over procedural nonsense where nothing hinged on it. And a lot of those judges who laughed these cases out of the courtroom are Republican judges. A lot of them are judges appointed by Donald Trump. Even in the Arizona audit where they thought, oh, this will definitely flip the state back to Trump, they did the whole audit, and Biden ended up winning by more votes than he did on Election Day. So they undercounted Biden's numbers. So they just, a a psychologist would have a field day with these people, for sure. Because what you're seeing there is, it's an aspect of denial where some of these people cannot, under any circumstance, admit that, hey, it's an L for my side. Let me hold the L, dog. Because what they've done is they've defined themselves. We're the good guys. We're the good guys. The Democrats on the left are the bad guys. So if we, if our side ends up doing bad things, it has to be that actually the Democrats did it or it was a setup. It can't just be that there are people who agree with my politics who actually have very nefarious strategies and motives and are willing to break laws in service of it. Can't be that. And this is the kind of partisan brain rot and tribalism which everybody should be an opponent of. I mean, just be honest. Just be honest. Just say, look, 
yeah, I'm a Trump person, but the way that a lot of the Trump people acted here on January 6th is inexcusable and not okay. And, you know, we have our answer. Joe Biden won the election, whether or not we like it. Joe Biden's our president, whether or not we like it. But let's be adults about it and let's fight in a way that's peaceful and makes sense. That's all you got to do, but they can't even bring themselves to do that. And there has been the increasing radicalization of the Trump hardcore base. Listen, you guys know me. I believe in the power of persuasion. I believe in deconverting people away from nefarious ideas and policy beliefs. And I have faith in that. But at the same time, it's not like there are no TFGs out there. There are plenty of TFGs out there. And these are the TFGs right here. And they're just wholly unwilling to ever admit fault in any way, shape, or form. And... You're not going to reach these people. You're just not. Because they refuse to acknowledge basic things. And the real interesting question is just how deep is the, brain, is the brainwashing? So are they really just brainwashed? And that's where the role of conservative media comes in. Because, you know, Fox News, uh, a lot of these Fox News, but a lot of this crowd has even graduated beyond Fox News. And they're with One American News Network or Newsmax. And those are the real outlets. I mean, they have lawsuits against them from Dominion voting because the conspiracy theories that these outlets were pushing were preposterous. They were saying that Venezuela swung the election. It was Maduro who swung the election from Trump to Biden by him flipping the, the votes in the machine. And yeah, there's a, there's a niche there. There's a lane there. And these really vapid and destructive and dangerous conservative outlets are just totally unscrupulous. And they'll say anything. I, listen, I think a lot of people who are even on those outlets, uh, like Greg Kelly, I, I don't even think he believes a word he says. You, go follow that guy on Twitter. It's a hilarious follow. But you know he's playing a character. The whole time he's playing a character. But this sort of brainwashing, I mean, it all started way back in the day with Rush Limbaugh and talk radio. And, you know, then came Fox News in the 1990s. And now you have also One American News Network and, and Newsmax and, it is dangerous what they're doing. They're playing with fire. And they've also made it so that people think by supporting these standard Republican politicians, it's sort of like an edgy revolutionary act, when really, these, including Trump, all these people just uphold the status quo. That old Thomas Frank book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Why are people voting against their own economic interests? And the answer is culture war. And these people are so, so deep in the culture war, they can't see straight. And that's where you get absurd things they say like this. Democrats were behind it. It was Antifa. It was BLM. Uh, There's no way a Republican would act, like, act that way. And then also, I love Trump didn't have anything to do with January 6th. He gave a freaking speech where he said, let's march to the Capitol. You know, and his commentary, even when he was condemning it nominally, he was like, you're very special people. I understand why you're mad. We can't allow an election to get stolen. But also, please go home. This is getting a little crazy. So even when he was condemning them, he was also praising them and giving them pats on the head. It's interesting because it's like when the Trump came out very pro-vaccine, you saw this cognitive dissonance among these people, and they don't know what to do. Because on the one hand, Trump is like a godlike emperor figure to them. But on the other hand, part of their, their, uh, their canon, their ideology, is uh, the vaccine is bad. And so a lot of these people had just total identity crises around that clip. And you could see how that's the case based on the way the supporters act here. But, look, it's always interesting to see these on-the-street interviews and um, 
well, I'll keep trying to deconvert people, but you got to view things accurately. And the fact of the matter is a lot of these people are too far gone. Okay. Next. Oh, okay. Hold on. I have uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Dan Crenshaw went at it, son. Went at it for real. So not too long ago, we reported on this civil war on the right. And uh, there was some event, Texas conservatives or something like that, where Dan Crenshaw took some shots at Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And he made the argument, hey, listen, when you look at the voting record, I'm more like Trump. And even Adam Kinzinger, who's anti-Trump, voted more with Trump than the Marjorie Taylor Greene types and the Matt Gates types. And he was saying, like, don't fall for all this show because the show is irrelevant. It's about, you know, the policy effectively. Now, on the one hand, I'm sympath- I don't agree with him. I hate his ideology, but I'm sympathetic to that argument because policy is ultimately all that matters. But the fact of the matter is, right underneath his criticism is something very simple. Jealousy. Dan Crenshaw is jealous that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates that they're the ones who get all the press. And they're the ones who get most of the fundraising from the Trump base. And so he was basically whining, he said, hey, 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 look at me, look at me, I'm better, mommy, why don't you pick me? So he was upset about that. He took some shots at her, she took some shots at him. Um, and now that civil war has escalated. It has escalated. So Dan Crenshaw came out and said, quote, I'm a conservative. I always make sure people know there's only so much the government can do. What the federal government should, should be doing again using their FEMA resources to bolster a lot of these testing sites, open up new testing sites. This is what we saw happen during the Trump administration. So he's talking about the Omicron surge. He's talking about how Biden's failing. And he's saying, look, open up testing sites and get on it right now. Uh, Is that a policy that uh, I think is good? Yeah, absolutely. I think he should use the Defense Production Act to make these tests. I think he should use the Defense Production Act to make monoclonal antibodies, to make all these therapeutics. this is the government doing something that the government should be doing. So Dan Crenshaw is 100% right. Um, and then, by the way, Crenshaw also went on to say the same thing. He said, look, uh, the government should be, we should focus our resources on making monoclonal antibodies and stuff like that and um, recruiting healthcare workers, uh, bring them into the military or FEMA and help people that way. So Marjorie Taylor Greene comes out. This is glorious. Marjorie Taylor Greene comes out and says, oh, shit, missed my spot. Here we go. Quote, no, FEMA should not set up testing sites to check for Omicron sneezes, coughs, and runny noses. He needs to stop calling himself a conservative. He's hurting our brand. It, it's good for conservatism to say, let the virus rip through unabated and let's not have the government do basic governmental functions. Apparently that's what she thinks. Now, listen, from a conservative ideological perspective, she has a point. Because if you really do believe, I'm in favor of limited government, well, why would the government get involved in health care? Now, I'm a lefty, so my perspective is, Yes, have the government get involved in healthcare. Yes, have the government do everything with healthcare. Get the profit motive out of it. No mafia-like middlemen. Should be free at the point of service, funded through our tax dollars instead of endless wars and Wall Street bailout. Fund health. But it is more the right-wing perspective to say, get the government out of healthcare. Okay, so she is being more conservative in this respect. Well, he didn't like that. He said, quote, hey, Marjorie, if suggesting we should follow Trump policy instead of Biden mandates makes you mad, then you might be a Democrat or just an idiot. So, look, on the substance of it, he's right about that because she is an idiot. And, I mean, to take a bold stand during a pandemic of, like, let's have the government not help as much as possible. It's like, yeah, you are kind of an idiot. 
Now, he, of course, had to frame it in partisan terms and say, well, I'm against Biden mandates, so that's why I'm for the government testing and monoclonal antibodies and stuff. See, he's trying to posture as, like, more right-wing than thou, even while making an argument that is not more right-wing than her. But his point is correct. Like, hey, this is similar to a Trump policy. So on that front, he's like, I'm with Trump, you're against Trump. So how do you like them apples? So that they're going at it. Now, then we had Marjorie Taylor Greene get banned from Twitter. And she starts crying about that and whining about that. Understandably so. If I got banned from Twitter, I'd be saying the same thing. Now, granted, I don't post COVID misinformation every 17 seconds like she does. But still, I understand being upset about getting banned from Twitter. Um, well, then... Uh, Crenshaw goes on his Instagram story, and he says this. Hey, uh, real Marjorie Taylor Greene, instead of playing the victim about censorship, maybe use your position as a legislator to help pass legislation against censorship. Luckily, I've already done all the hard work for you and drafted a bill that would change Section 230 to prohibit political censorship. Want want to co-sponsor before I introduce it or prefer to keep up with petty and childish attacks? Your call. Um... So a couple things to say about that. He says, well, you're playing the victim. I mean, look, dude, uh, I hate Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she definitely posted COVID misinformation, but she is an actual victim. She's not playing the victim. If you're banned from Twitter and you say, hey, I shouldn't have been banned from Twitter, you have a genuine claim to victimhood on that front. So weird to be like so-called victim or whatever. But the other thing about this is his bill would not stop political censorship at all would not stop social media censorship and deplatforming and banning at all. This whole Section 230 thing that the right's obsessed with, they totally misread that policy because they think, oh, if we just get rid of Section 230, well, then the social media companies will have to be more hands-off and allow free speech. Wrong. Section 230 is – the idea of Section 230 is you allow the social media sites to be basically – blank slate. So in other words, you can't be held responsible if you're Twitter or if you're Facebook for somebody who posts on Twitter or Facebook. You Basically, their argument is, hey man, I'm a medium. I don't do any curating or editing or, you know, cutting and pasting or nipping and tucking. It, it, in other words, they're not treated like a newspaper or something like that. They're treated like just sort of a medium blank slate thing where people come and say whatever they want to say and they can't be held legally, legally responsible for it. If you get rid of that and you make Twitter and Facebook and all these different outlets, you make them responsible for the crazy shit that people post on these sites, then they'll do even more censorship and even more deplatforming because they don't want to be held responsible for what some psycho says. They, I don't know why they think, oh, if you do this policy, then they'll have to allow you know, more free speech. It's the exact opposite. So they're, they're just dead wrong about this. And I don't doubt that they sincerely believe if you get rid of Section 230 that you'll have more free speech. But you're just wrong. It will massively increase censorship and deplatforming. Um, so he's wrong on the policy of that as well. Now, I have more. Uh, Dan Crenshaw continued and said, that Marjorie scoffed at the notion of supporting anti-censorship legislation is indicative of her true intent to remain a victim. She doesn't want solutions, and she doesn't care if you get censored. She just wants to be a victim so she can keep asking you for campaign donations. It's a scam. This one got under my skin. Because we just covered the story. Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw. 
just asked for donations while he was on Fox News, small donations, to make another shitty action movie style ad where he's a superhero. And he's saying, she just wants to play the victim. She can keep asking you for donations. You just asked for donations for something incredibly stupid. So look in the mirror, Dippy. What are you talking about? And listen, I said it before, I'll say it again. Listen, I hate Marjorie Taylor Greene, disagree with her on virtually everything, and she is posting COVID misinformation, and that's deplorable. But she was banned from Twitter. So insofar as she's a victim, that would make sense on that front. Anybody who gets censored has some claim to victimhood or deplatformed has some claim to victimhood. Now, granted, she still has her congressional Twitter account, so how censored is she really if she can still pop on there and say whatever she wants? But um, there is a point there, and your legislation is not anti-censorship. I'm going to come back to the main point on this because I really do think this underlies the entire debate. Dan Crenshaw is jealous of Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's jealous of Lauren Boebert. He's jealous of Matt Gates. He's jealous of the Trump-style Republicans who get more press than him and get more love from the base. And he's tried so hard to be that popular, cool kid who's in with the base, who gets all the love and the donations, but he's just not as dynamic or interesting as the other ones. He's kind of got a shitty personality. And so he's not that charismatic, and so he just doesn't get that love. And I think him lashing out and the Marjorie Taylor Greene types is just him jealous, basically. Now, I will agree with him on one thing, though. He's right about the coronavirus thing, for sure. You know, like, you should do more testing. You should use the Defense Production Act to make more monoclonal antibodies and other therapeutics. You absolutely should. So he's right about that stuff. And he's right that she's an idiot. I think that might be another part of it, to be fair to Crenshaw. I think another part of it is he genuinely feels like she's really fucking stupid, and I don't want that to be the face of conservatism moving forward. (laughs) Bad news for you, Dan. It is. And the other thing is, yeah, you're marginally better than her in some respects, but, like, This guy's wrong about almost everything. Like, I watched his podcast with Joe Rogan, and every single policy idea that this guy pushes is just based on terrible evidence and not thoughtful and would actively hurt working people in this country. And I actually care about working people. I care about average Americans. And this guy is just a doctrinaire conservative in many respects, save the COVID testing thing that he floated, which was good. But anyway, there you have it. Man, they're going at it. Keep fighting, baby. I'm enjoying watching this. All right, next. Here we go. Ron Johnson is, I think he's one of the richest members of the Senate. He's very wealthy, this guy. And he's also one of the dumbest. And um, he went on some right-wing radio show, and he made a claim that generated headlines because what he says is beyond absurd. And by the way, I not only tested positive, but then I tested for antibodies at a whopping level, so I had it, but I didn't have any symptoms. How do you explain that? Why would we just automatically assume that our natural immunity is going to be awful? It's going to be non-existent when generally you think the default position would be if we've already had it. You're probably pretty well protected. Why do we assume the worst? Why do we assume that the body's natural immune system isn't the marvel that it really is? Why do we think that we can create something better than God in terms of, you know, in terms of combating disease? Now, there are certain things we have to do. 
But we've just made so many assumptions, and it's all pointed toward everybody getting a vaccine. Yeah, because it gives you 90% protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. People who don't get the vaccine are 10 times more likely to be hospitalized and have severe illness than people who do get the vaccine. That's why they're trying to get everybody the vaccine. Now, yes, it is true. If you have natural immunity, I think that should count as like you've been vaxxed. I do think that. Uh, But I don't know if you caught what he said there in the middle, but he effectively said, well, God's vaccine is better than the COVID vaccine. This is an argument we've heard a lot recently, this notion of like, well, your immune system is more complex and intricate and incredible than anything that, you know, we can come up with. So really the best vaccine is just getting COVID. This is what Matt Gates said recently too. There's over 825,000 Americans dead from COVID. There's over 5 million people in the world who've died from COVID. And by the way, let me say, despite one of the common narratives that's out there nowadays, those numbers are actually way higher. It is a historical truism in every pandemic that during the pandemic, the deaths are way undercounted and the infections are way undercounted. Why? Because we don't have the testing capacity and the infrastructure in order to keep up perfectly with what's going on with everybody. I've known a bunch of people who've had COVID and they're not even counted in the official statistics that just came out that over a million people got COVID in one day, tested positive in one day. Can add at least like three or four to that? I know them personally and they didn't get officially tested. So what's the problem with this theory? The problem with this theory is over 825,000 American corpses and over 5 million worldwide corpses. That's the problem with that theory. Now, by the way, he's not entirely wrong when he says, hey, our immune system is a marvel. It's incredible. That's the whole point of a vaccine. The vaccine basically baits your body into responding to the virus, even though you don't have the virus. So you create the antibodies and the T cells and you have the immunity if you get it again. Or you certainly have. Now, look, the vaccine isn't perfect. It's not like you're 100% protected against ever getting the virus at all. No, but you are 90% protected or just over 90% protected against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. With the original vaccines, with the original COVID variant, you were very protected against even getting it. It was very, like, very few people who got the original vaccine even got COVID. But then with Delta, okay, that dropped a little bit too. Now with Omicron, it dropped again. So, yes. You're not very protected against getting it at all, but you are very protected against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So, yeah, if you think the immune system is a marvel, well, that's exactly why we created the vaccines, so that it works in tandem with your immune system, where your immune system learns what that virus would be like if you were to get it, and so that when you do get it, you either don't get sick, or if you do get sick, it's a very mild form of it. God's vaccine is better than the COVID vaccine. This argument, is, it's always so stupid because it just disregarded all the dead bodies. But also, there's plenty of things that exist in the world that are nominally made by God, if you're inclined to think that way, that are terrible. There are children with cancer. Did God want that? There, there are tsunamis that kill thousands of people. There are earthquakes that do the same. There are volcanoes. There are super volcanoes. You know, if God's so genius, why did he make us with so many flaws? There are parts of our body that we don't even use anymore. Like, what's that part? I don't know why I'm blanking on this part of the body. And now, now I'm bothered by it, and I'm going to look it up while I'm live on air, even though it's a waste of time. 
what part of our body do we not need? Appendix. Appendix. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, what a great design we have where there are parts of our body that we don't even need. There, I can, we can point to all sorts of things in the world that are quote-unquote natural, that are here because of God, that are terrible. Anthrax is natural. I think anthrax is deadly. It's created in like when an animal's dying and decaying, anthrax is somehow created in that process. Parasites are natural, are from God. So this notion of like, well, why do we think we can make anything better than God? God's vaccine is the best. And I love how he uses his personal experience to justify his whole worldview on this. That's such a classic far-right thing to do. Well, I got it, and I wasn't even that sick. How do you explain that? There are plenty of people who get it and don't get that sick. There are plenty of people who were infected and never felt a single symptom, even if they're unvaccinated. There's also plenty of people who get it and die almost immediately, and everything in between that you could think of. So this is the nature of this virus. It's weird, but it's the nature of the virus. If you weren't very sick and you got better quickly, okay, more power to you. But not everybody's Ron Johnson. There's all sorts of people who react all sorts of different ways. There are people who are immunocompromised and even after getting vaccinated, pass away. Now, granted, that's a very tiny number, but that Colin Powell, for example, and the anti-vaxxers really latched onto that one as if they disproved the entire vaccine. But, like, you got to do everything you can within your power to protect yourself within reason. And it's not that much to ask people to get a shot. It's really not. I'm vaccinated. I had zero symptoms. After the first shot, I had a tiny headache. But then after the, the second shot, I had nothing. Nothing. I just, what's the motivation for undermining the safest, most effective way we have? to protect you and to get out of this pandemic faster. Why? Why would you do it? And really, I have no other answer other than he's just not that bright. But he kind of proves my point because what's his argument? Well, I got better, and God's vaccine is better than anything humans can create. Oh. Oh. I'll say it one more time. The human immune system is a marvel in many respects which is why you should get the vaccine because your body reacts like you have the virus and gives you the protection, even though you don't have the virus. It is a wonderful answer. Listen, there's a reason why polio is eradicated. You know, how many lives have vaccines saved throughout modern history? Seriously. It's gotta be in the millions, right? We have all these vaccines, uh, polio, rubella, mumps, tetanus, all these measles. And for whatever reason, people are stuck on this one. There are people who have their kids vaccinated for all the other things, and they're like, great, but this one they get stuck on. Don't be misled by charlatans. Most of the people talking about this stuff are just wrong if they're taking the position that it's not safe or it's not effective or whatever. You don't want to be in league with this guy, right? Ron Johnson, because look at the sorts of arguments he uses. This is a sad one, man. 
More Perfect Union is uh, basically a labor news outlet, and they're doing a phenomenal job. By the way, I think the person who started it is, uh, we had him on Crystal Island, friends. It's Fashi Kier, former uh, Bernie campaign manager. Um, so everybody go subscribe to More Perfect Union on YouTube. Go follow them on Twitter. Seriously, you won't regret it. You'll be up to date on what's happening with labor and unions and workers in America all the time. Well, uh, they got an exclusive here. There are two Amazon workers who died after being denied sick leave, and they died on the job. This is crazy. Let's watch, and then we'll talk about it. possible these people would be alive if they were allowed to go home or go to the doctor because they felt sick. That's very possible. But they didn't. They died. In fact, what they say? Six people died? 
but two of them were on the two of them. This is the same day, by the way. Two of them were on the job and they were not allowed to go, even though they felt terrible. Look, call it what it is, man. In no real sense of the term, do you have freedom if you can't even say, hey, I don't feel good, I want to go home. It, I mean, it's wage slavery in a sense, isn't it? It's very similar to like indentured servitude is what we're looking at here. That's not, we like to think of ourselves as a totally modern industrial nation where, you know, people are free to make whatever choices they want. Well, those people, if they really had the freedom, would have wanted to, would have went home or would have went to the doctor, would have went to the hospital, something. And perhaps they'd be alive. It's a crime, the labor protections and labor standards in this country. It really is. Um, let me tell you, so paid sick leave. Here are countries that have, and this isn't even all of them, but I'll give you some of them. Paid sick leave by law. So in other words, if you go to your employer and say, I don't feel good, I'm going home. They are legally not allowed to tell you. No, you can't go back to work, or no, let me talk to somebody higher up the chain than me. They can't do that. You say, look, I, I, I don't feel good, i got to go. They go, okay. They don't have a choice. Switzerland, Norway, Luxembourg, Iceland, Greece, Germany, Belgium, Austria, Australia, Finland, Sweden, Netherlands, Denmark, New Zealand, Japan, Spain, Italy, France, Canada, Ireland, UK. That's not even all of them. I'm just giving you some of them. There's that amazing chart that we always used to show on the, on the show. Um, paid vacation time by law. Virtually every other country in the world, certainly every other developed country, has paid vacation time by law. So again, you work it out with uh, whoever your boss is, whoever the owner is, and you say, I'm taking off. I'm taking a vacation. Maybe there's a little give and take in terms of what the dates are or whatever. You've got to figure it out. But you have paid vacation time by law. It works differently in different countries too, by the way. In some countries, it's, it's paid by the government. In some countries, it's paid by the companies. And I think in many, it's, it's a hybrid of the two. They pick up your paycheck while you're not there. There's another way in which we're just absolutely screwed. We just, workers in this country get treated like garbage. Did you know, so another one, paid maternity leave. We talk about that all the time, right? Uh, the United States is one of like three countries in the entire world that don't have paid maternity leave by law. Papua New Guinea is one of the others. U.S. and Papua New Guinea, which, by the way, is very, very, very underdeveloped, needless to say. No paid sick days by law, no paid vacation days by law, no paid holidays by law, no paid maternity leave, no paid paternity leave. We even have countries that are now experimenting with a four-day work week. I know there was a, a pilot program in Spain. That was one place. Um, New Zealand is, is testing it out. Iceland is testing it out. Apparently, a four-day work week is the norm in Iceland. 
That's according to 85% of workers in Iceland have the option of working just four days a week. That's an article in CNBC uh, from July 12, 2021. So we have countries doing four-day work weeks. We have virtually every other country has paid vacation time by law, paid holidays by law, paid sick time, paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave. And um, we don't have any of that. And we work incredibly long hours for terrible pay. And we just got the news that uh, billionaires uh, just got a trillion dollars richer during the pandemic, or it may have even been in just the last year. Just saw that a couple days ago. And we get stories like this. I mean, look, this is something that could have come, come out of uh, the Industrial Revolution era, you know, this story. Two Amazon workers die on the same day, and they were denied sick leave. Forget even paid sick leave. Unpaid sick leave they were denied. Unpaid sick leave. So you can't even say, hey, I want to go home. I don't feel, feel well, but, you know, it's okay. You don't even have to pay me, so I'll take the hit, but I, I want to go home. I don't feel well. If you're not mad, you're not paying attention. And there is no aspect of conservative philosophy that's going to get you out of this. Because even if it's libertarian conservatism, Ron Paul style, well, they think, uh, you know, the owner has to say. You work for the owner, and whatever the owner says goes. And if they want to fire you because you felt sick and you wanted to go home and they don't want you to go home, they could fire you for that. Is that the ideology that's going to save us? Is standard Republican ideology going to save us here when they always side with the managers? Now, is the Democratic Party going to save us when we had these ideas on the table and it was axed by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema casually? A leftist approach is the only way out of this. At the very least, a social democratic approach is the only way out of this. You need worker solidarity. You need pressure on the government. You need unions. Unions make it much more likely that you're going to get some paid time off and some paid sick leave. Because they negotiate the contracts with management. It's called collective bargaining. You and everybody you work with gets together and says, look, you need all of us. And we're all one. We stand here in solidarity with each other. So here are our demands. And there's a give and take and there's a negotiation. But you know what? You're going to have better terms than you have right now. And this was in the Bessemer, Alabama uh, warehouse where Amazon cheated to defeat a union. And now... They just ordered, National Labor Relations Board just ordered a new election there because Amazon cheated. There are almost no words for how preposterous and evil this situation is. Final point, don't get it twisted. We love to talk about the virtues of political democracy in this country, but clearly in the workplace, it ain't no democracy. It's a tyranny. It's a dictatorship. And so we need to do everything in our power to drag this country to sanity in the workplace more collective bargaining, more democracy in the workplace, more rules that are beneficial for the working class that make it so you're not wasting your life at a company that doesn't care about you, that would sooner see you die than let you go home and take a little break. Rest in peace to these people. I mean, it is absolutely a nightmare that this happened. Credit to More Perfect Union for shedding light on this story. And where are you, national media? Where are you? Where are you? Is this not a story that's worth covering? Amazon didn't let people go home when they felt sick and then two of them died on the same day. Is that not interesting enough for you? Is that not sensationalist enough for you? Or is mainstream media 
largely working on behalf of their big corporate advertisers, and so they side with management. That's the reality. Okay. Talk about Iran and Donald Trump. So Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo were responsible when they were in office for um, murdering General Soleimani. General Soleimani uh, it was one of the top anti-ISIS commanders on the ground in the Middle East. They were, uh, he was the head of a Shia front which would take on ISIS. Well, the U.S. was not a fan of Soleimani, and um, word was that, you know, he's representing Iran, and Iran is, of course, uh, one of our top enemies, and we had intelligence uh, of where he was, so Trump ordered the strike, and he was killed. Um, well, now Iran, the new president of Iran, Raisi, just gave a speech where he didn't mince words, and he said, listen... It's a war crime, and you should be tried for it. So let's take a look. This is from The Hill. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi is calling for former President Trump and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to face trial for the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in a January 2020 drone strike ordered by Trump. Raisi, in a speech on Monday, said Trump and Pompeo should be tried in a fair court for the assassination of Soleimani. He called Trump an aggressor, murderer, and the main culprit. If Trump and Pompeo are not tried in a fair court for the criminal act of assassinating General Soleimani, Muslims will take our martyrs' revenge, Raisi said. The aggressor, murderer, and main culprit, the then President of the United States, must be tried and, and judged by the Islamic law of retribution, and God's ruling must be carried out against him, Raisi added. Uh, Soleimani was killed near Baghdad's airport on January 3, 2020, in a drone strike that, that Trump ordered. Quote, we took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war, Trump said in a statement the next day. I remember reading that quote and just losing it. We murdered your top commander to prevent a war, not start it. Flip the script. Imagine Iran kills a top American general, and then we're ready to respond. And they go, whoa, 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 what are you guys doing? Murder your general to start a war? We were trying to stop a war because we thought he was going to come for us or something. What would our reaction be? That We'd laugh that out of the room. <laughs> are you... Of course we're going to attack you. You just declared war on us. You just killed our top commander. What are you, insane? Are you insane? Do you have any brain cells in there? But we do to them, and Trump said that with a straight face. Look, I'm not trying to start a war. I just murdered your commander because I wanted to prevent a war or something. So when we do violent actions, it doesn't count. We define it as defensive and preventative by definition, even though there's zero evidence Soleimani was going to attack the U.S. in any way, shape, or form. And then they go, oh, well, he was involved in the Iraq war, and he went after our people then. Well, now he's on the ground fighting ISIS. And you took out him, which means what? You were de facto allying with ISIS, which is not too out of character for the United States, to be honest, to side with jihadists. We've seen this during the Cold War under Ronald Reagan, where we funded the Mujahideen, which later became, uh, you know, split up into the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Um... We've seen this under Obama with the arming of 
Syrian rebels, Al-Nusra Front, which was a jihadist faction. So this is not out of character that we ended up acting as an ally to the worst of the worst in the Middle East, to the Sunni fundamentalists, the Salafists, the jihadists. So uh, to their commentary here, to what Raisi said, listen, this is what America asked for. Because Obama made the deal, Obama and Kerry made the deal with Hassan Rouhani, who's a moderate in Iran. Um, And then we violated the deal a thousand ways and we pulled out of the deal. So what happened in Iran was people looked at the moderates and they said, you suckers, how naive are you? You cut a deal with the great Satan and they went back on it immediately. Why did you even cut a deal with the great Satan? Everybody knows we've been warning you, of course they're going to stab you in the back and twist the knife, you losers. And so that led to the rise of the right in Iran, the hardliners. And Raisi won. Raisi's a hardliner. So now this is the kind of talk that you get from hardliners. Under Rouhani, we, were, we made a peace deal. Under Raisi, fuck you and the horse you rode in on, and you should be tried for war crimes, and you should be tried in an Islamic court too. And if you're not, well, we're going to take our martyrs' revenge on you. This is what you asked for. You wanted to be a hardline. You wanted to be an asshole. You wanted to rip up the deal, which was working phenomenally well, not according to Kyle Kalinske, according to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, who was tasked with checking whether or not the terms of the deal were being upheld. Well, here you go. And listen, the Islamic stuff aside, where, oh, you should be tried in an Islamic court, that stuff aside, is there an actual argument that Pompeo and Trump committed war crimes? And they should be tried in an international court of law? You bet your ass there is. We even co- Look, we told you, the International Criminal Court told the U.S., because part of our crackdown on Iran, we were even sanctioning medicine from going into that country. The International Criminal Court said, you cannot do this. This goes to women. This goes to children. This goes to civilians. They need medicine. It's illegal for you to block medicine from going into their country. The response from America was to pull out of the International Criminal Court and chastise it and say, thank you, we're going to go ahead and keep sanctioning the medicine. On that alone, that's a war crime. You should stand trial for that. Assassinating a commander, there was no declaration of law, uh, excuse me, declaration of war through Congress. There was no declaration of war. Congress has to declare war. There was no declaration of war. There was no, they didn't even pass anything saying that Soleimani's an okay target, where instead of saying, oh, we're going to war against the country, they could have said, hey, here's a specific target you can go after. They didn't even do that. There was no declaration of war in any way, shape, or form, and you did an offensive, illegal, unconstitutional assassination on a foreign commander and almost sparked World War III. I remember that was the part of the Trump presidency. I was like, oh, no, what have you done? What have you done? Because then what happened? Well, immediately there were retaliatory strikes within the next few days. And so you sparked a backlash. You sparked more fighting. And for what? This guy wasn't planning attacks against Americans. He was, had his hands full with ISIS. I'm sure at the time Israel and Netanyahu were involved. They're always pushing for more tensions and more war with Iran. I'm sure Trump surrounded by his neocon hawks. Probably Bolton was still there at the time. I don't remember. But I think Bolton was still a top advisor at the time. And all the neocons want, more war, more war, more war, be more hawkish, raise tensions more, 
kill, murder, assassinate. And somehow when we do it, it doesn't count as offensive, even when it's by definition offensive. It's only defensive or whatever. And it's dangerous, man, playing with fire. And if any other country acted in the way we acted on that day, we would say they're a rogue country and they're ripe for regime change. That's what we would say. Can't assassinate random generals and commanders around the world and act like it's fair and fine. So in a very narrow way, this guy, he's making sense. He's not making sense, oh, using Islamic court, and he's not making sense, oh, we'll get the martyr's revenge or whatever. But the idea that Trump and Pompeo should be tried for war crimes, as Noam Chomsky said, every post-World War II U.S. president, if the Nuremberg laws were upheld, they'd be hanged. Now, I'm against the death penalty, so they shouldn't be hanged. But should they be tried and have other forms of justice and their sentence be upheld? Yeah, they absolutely should. Whether it's Obama, whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, these guys are all war criminals, and there's no doubt about it. And this was one of the most egregious acts I'd ever seen. All right, final story of the day, y'all. So Big Pharma is out there running ads where they're going to shamelessly lie. I'll break it all down for you afterwards. Uh, But also, really what this ad is, is effectively a defense of price gouging. Today, vaccines and antivirals are helping fight the pandemic because scientists and researchers in America's biopharmaceutical industry acted fast after investing billions over years to achieve breakthroughs. But now, Congress is threatening legislation that will devastate private industry's ability to fund treatments just like these. What's at stake isn't corporate profits, it's public preparedness. Tell Congress to oppose legislation that would harm our ability to fight pandemics. Paid for by Coalition to Protect Access. Coalition to Protect Access. Look at the Orwellian language they use. They try to dress everything up. The Coalition to Protect Access. Tell Congress not to do anything that would get in the way of us fighting another pandemic. This, is, this ad was specifically about, hey, Democrats want to lower prescription drug prices. Don't let them do it. Now, for those of you who don't know, they made a compromise where instead of lowering all prescription drug prices, they said, what if we lowered prescription drug prices for like 10 drugs or 15 drugs or something, and we did it by like 2025? It's a watered-down, stupid, dumb compromise where the Democrats are being half corrupt. And, of course, the Republican position is, don't do anything like that. Let uh, Big Pharma price gouge completely. Well, even the watered-down version, Big Pharma is like, nope, not having it. going to run ads against it. Uh, Well, guess what? This is from the Daily Poster, and look at what they say. The Biden consultants working to sink his agenda. The president's top media buying firm is, help, is helping Big Pharma fight Democrats' drug pricing plan. So the media buying firm that ran this ad was Joe Biden's top media buying firm. And now they're working on behalf of pharma in that sum. So listen to this. Top Democratic Party media buying firm Canal Partners Media is placing ads for drug industry front groups that want to block Democrats' bill from lowering drug prices, as promised in the Biden reconciliation bill. These fear-mongering ad campaigns conveniently ignore the fact that the federal government's 
the federal government regularly subsidizes drug companies' research and development costs and has spent tens of billions of dollars to fund COVID vaccines and treatments. That's the most important point. You keep that in mind. The front groups purchased more than $5 million worth of TV ads between December and January. The Canal Partners media website touts its work as Biden's leading buying agency and its experience championing progressive causes. Are you kidding me? What a sick joke this is. The Canal uh, Partners media website touts its, oh, I already read that, Media Buying and Analytics, a company affiliated with Canal Partners Media, handled almost $450 million worth of ad buys for Biden's 2020 campaign. And now they're trying to sink lower drug prices for big pharma. What I'm amazed by is how weak the final ad even is. Because it's really vague, and they don't get into specifics, and they don't even they don't even have a good line of bullshit. Because what they're arguing for is so egregious that they can't do any better than what you just saw. Tell Congress not to get in the way of anything that's going to try to prevent the next pandemic. And I, we swear this is not about corporate profits. That's not what this is about. It's not. The fact that you said that it proves it is about corporate profits. Like when Nixon said, I'm not a crook. Everybody was like, hey, dog, you a crook? Why would you say you're not a crook unless you're, you're probably a crook? Same thing here. This isn't about corporate profits. That is exactly what it's about. Exactly what it's about. And like they pointed out in this, the United States government spent billions of dollars to fund COVID vaccines and COVID treatments. And then what happens? Same thing that happens with every other drug that's created in this country. Some university does the research with government backing, and then a big pharma company comes in, buys up the rights to it, and then turns around and price gouges the American people. So in other words, we pay for the research and development, and then you would think, well, on the back end, we'll get it cheap, or we've already paid for it, so we're good. No. You pay up front with tax money, big pharma buys up the rights, and then they turn around and price gouge you again, so you pay twice for it. And the second time, you're paying a preposterous amount anyway. It's like the, the Molnupiravir pill, which we talked about, which we funded with taxpayer money. Then I think it was Merck that bought the rights to it. Then they turn around and charge us 40 times what it costs to make. Let me explain something to you. There is absolutely, positively, no reason for Big Pharma to exist. Virtually all the research for these drugs is done with government money at universities. Virtually all the new medicines for decades have come with government funding from universities. Research done there. They are nothing but for-profit middlemen. They are sharks. They are a mafia. That's what they are. They don't provide any value whatsoever. Nationalize all of Big Pharma, all of it. Nationalize it. Nationalize it. No more price gouging and being a middleman and providing nothing of value. No more stealing from Americans and then having your CEOs get tens of millions of dollars and buying yachts and all sorts of shit. And wait, they waste so much money on advertising, trying to sell us the pills. Other countries don't even have pill advertisements, medicine advertisements. You want to know why? Because you get sick, you go to the doctor, you get help, and that's the end of it. Why would, you, why would there be an ad for, well, if you have cancer, ask your doctor about this, this, or this. If you have cancer, you go to the doctor, and they'll just be like, hey, here's your treatment. Ads, pharmaceutical ads, that's fucking psychotic. We had that in this country. Ban 
Big Pharma nationalized the industry. It's the clearest example of a perverse incentive structure. The way it works right now is perverse. Same with uh, the health insurance industry. That's perverse. The way they make money is to deny you care as much as possible. You pay some middleman, and then if you get sick, they go, maybe we'll pay for it, maybe we won't. We'll have to look at the details. Then why the fuck have I been paying you every month if you're not going to pay when I actually need you? It's a scam. It is a messed up incentive system. We got to have single payer and we should totally nationalize the pharmaceutical industry because they're crooks and this is what they're doing. And by the way, they own the entire Republican Party and like 85% of the Democratic Party and they're blocking any movement in the right direction. Because what did they do? They found the one holdout, the one person who was gettable, Kirsten Cinema, right? And they gave her a million dollars and then she turns around and is like, oh, did I run ads when I was in Congress on lowering prescription drug prices? Well, now I'm against that. Wow. Wow. Absolutely pathetic, man. Absolutely pathetic. So Biden's own consultants are sinking his agenda. For some reason, I'm not at all surprised by that. All right, guys. We are done. We are out of time. I love y'all. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.